0: So, for some of you, and you may be aware of this in yourselves, uh, the pattern or a pattern that you get into, that you might get into, is self-doubt. Doubting yourself, doubting your capabilities, doubting your practice. And uh, with that sometimes self-criticism, dismissal of what one sees or what one uh, the work one is doing in practice and in meditation. This is a very, very common pattern. Not everyone has it, but it's very, very common. As far as I can see from the interviews and the questions, etc., everyone here, everyone is in different ways, because everyone is different and throwing out, we're weak, both John and I throwing out so much. Everyone in different ways is getting beginning to get some sense of the emptiness of things. It, it's absolutely happening. And if you're feeling like you're outside of that, it's, it's just not true. It's just not true. So I, I hope that if that is your tendency, that there can be that you can kind of lean into beginning to really appreciate uh, yourself, for your practice and appreciate what you're developing, what you're discovering, and feel good about that. To me, it's really a, a bedrock, a foundation of a healthy and, and uh, penetrating practice. Because, and I said this in the open talk, so many people here with so many different backgrounds, so many different kind of preconceptions and assumptions and different practices, it's actually kind of, uh, I don't know, it's a small miracle we, we kind of get any of this communicated in any way. Um, it's impossible to kind of tailor it exactly to one person. It's, it's just impossible. Um, so, and especially tonight, uh, in the retreat in general, but especially tonight, I'm going to kind of throw out some stuff, quite a lot of stuff, and it's kind of like seeds. And I just throw them out and this person takes this and this person takes that. Please, 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 in the retreat in general, but especially tonight, don't feel overwhelmed. Don't, you know, if it feels like too much, just I'll file it for later, I'll listen to the CD or whatever. Um, and maybe, you know, just take take what feels useful. Tomorrow I will talk about uh, the relationship of love and healing to emptiness and to the understanding of emptiness and what what all that has to do with it. But tonight what I really want to get into more (coughs) and fill out a little bit more is the emptiness of phenomena. So there are many, many phrases of the Buddha or other teachers uh, both in the Pali Canon and in the Mahayana texts, something like I pick one at random. One, one who does not see phenomena, one who does not see phenomena, sees reality. It's a pretty striking statement. One who does not see phenomena sees reality. Just historically, uh, and some of you know this division, Mahayana and Hinayana, etc. It was felt, or there was, a, I guess, a general feeling in India a few hundred years after the Buddha that a little bit of the compassion of the original teachings had gone out of the kind of culture of Buddhism. And so preoccupation of the Mahayana was to bring that compassion to to, to the fore, to really be a central force in in one's practice. But secondly, it was also felt, and it seems to me quite rightly, that in, in the teachings of the Buddha, um, it was just the personal self, uh, the emptiness of the personal self that was tending to get emphasized, and a little bit people were losing the sense of the fullness of it's also phenomena all phenomena that are also empty and to me that's that's totally there in the Pali Canon it's not that it isn't there it just seemed and and still seems in some Theravada circles that that actually doesn't get emphasized quite well so you find this kind of historical movement of the Mahayana to kind of reassert those those two one's a compassion a factor and one's a kind of wisdom factor and that the kind of breadth and depth of what's meant by emptiness so now, as we've touched on in here already, you know, we could say anatta, not self, this is not self, not self. We could say the self is a process. We could say it's a kind of system interacting. We could say uh, lots of things. But to me it's a pretty safe assumption. It's a pretty safe assumption that something will be rarefied. The mind of delusion will be rarefying something in, in any of those approaches, in the anatta approach, not self, not self, not self, not me, not mine, in the saying self is a process, all of that, it will tend to reify, to make a thing, in that something, either the elements of that process, or the time in which it happens, and etc., or the awareness or something, will be, uh, at an almost subliminal level, usually, assumed to be inherently existent. And um, we can assume that's going on. That's how delusion works. And so the, the important thing is actually to... to air that, shine the light of it, and actually see that all all of it is empty, not just the self, but the phenomena too. So there's a real fullness here at once. It's, it's, a, it's huge. You know, what, what is the fullness of that to really understand in all the different ways that phenomena are empty? There's a, There's a, there's a uh, a vast fullness there of death. So some meditators, <clears throat> uh, particularly long-term meditators, soon, just following their meditative instinct and in the way experiences unfold, some will come to this conclusion that emptiness means the self is a process. Or some will say, like in that open awareness thing, that all is awareness. And it really feels like that from the meditative point of view. All is awareness, but not questioning the inherent existence of awareness. Or everything's insubstantial. Again, there's that sense, as meditation deepens, of everything kind of being illusion-like, film-like, that somehow there's still something hidden in there that has inherent existence. And so we've touched a little bit already, just uh, over the uh, days and weeks, on different ways to see the emptiness of phenomena. And two nights ago, uh, we talked to introduce one way was seeing this duality, the dualities and how we emphasize one duality over another and pick it out. And also two nights ago, we started talking about this concept of, or this uh, fact to be seen and discovered in meditation, of perception, meaning experience or object for consciousness. Perception, experience, object for consciousness, dissolving and fading, and seeing that. And I talked about these two possible modes of inquiring in meditation. One was uh, called phenomenological, meaning just going with the experience just seeing what happens to experience, and just thinking, not thinking, but uh, experiencing and inquiring in terms of experience. And a second mode that I called ontological, which is probably the wrong word, but... But in terms of this fading, that's a radical, radical, radical thing to discover and see, and its implications are radical. So most people, and most non-meditators even, would agree, hopefully, that our perceptions of the way things are are shaped, certainly, or coloured, certainly, by different factors. And sometimes a situation or a thing or a person seems this way, and sometimes it seems that way. And that much is like most kind of mature, uh, conscious human beings would agree on. Might even go a step further and may say, and I can also see how there's no definitive vantage point to see the reality of something. In other words, my perception, or perception is shaped and colored, and it's not like there's a zero point, say, between love and grumpiness. When I'm grumpy, I see the world this way. When I'm in love, I see the world that way. When there's a lot of matter, I see the world that way. When I have a lot of aversion, I see the world that way. And it's not like I can slide that scale along, put it on zero, and that's the real world. People might uh, also uh, admit to that and, and agree on that. But it seems like a whole other kind of uh, disturbing level to go to, to say that without being built, this thing, whatever it is, no matter how subtle, how gross, this thing, perception, object, cannot be, uh, it cannot be without being built. Built, fabricated, concocted, compounded, conditioned, etc. And without that, it would not actually exist. It would not exist for us. and that's what this fading has to do with. That's a whole other level of, like, people start to feel very unsure. Then so it's uh, questioning the seeming solid existence of things at a much uh, deeper level. It's cutting that tree trunk even deeper. So this goes for uh, perception, also Vaid, and I'll come back to that. That seems; it may seem like at first a step too far. It's too much to say that. It's, it's too much. Same exist physically. I'm saying exist for consciousness. Okay, I'm just talking that phenomenological mode right now. Exist for consciousness. So, remember, the Buddha's original teaching is just just relating to things on that level. We'll come back to another way of going about things. So, and I know for some of you in this room, you know, right now, it might feel too much. It might feel like pff, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds uh, stupid and uh, whatever. And so please, again, I'll go back to the opening talk. Asking, and it sounds a ridiculous thing to ask for on a tree. asking for a little bit of humility here. Asking for a little sense of openness uh, in, in, in the sense of what we understand and what might be understood. In that phenomenological approach and seeing how if I don't support the perception, the thing, the object for consciousness, in certain ways it fades, there's no metaphysical speculation there. That's not going on. We're not speculating a god or something or other. It's actually just, when when there's this, there's this. When there isn't this, there isn't this. So it's quite, you could say, scientific in that sense. And there's a lot of depth and a lot of subtlety of med- meditative discernment. So as we deepen in practice, and you may be... There yet, or you may be glimpsing it, or whatever, you may not yet. But there's, as we go deeper and the subtlety deepens of the meditative discernment, we begin to see this over and over. Famously, <coughs> the Buddha said to Ananda, well, Ananda said to the Buddha at one point, I think I get it now, I think I get dependent arising, I think I've got it. Uh, and the Buddha said, Don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. It's uh, in the deep profound, subtle, very hard to see. It takes a lot of wisdom to plumb the depths of this. Uh, and Ananda had been living, really, he was the Buddha's personal attendant for years, had heard lots of talks about this, meditated on it, able to ask the qu- Buddha questions directly and receive answers from directly, and still the Buddha said to him that. So to me, and I think I said one time, dependent arising, the understanding of it, is something that we can take at one level, fine, the everyday kind of psychological level, can take it deeper, can take it deeper, can take it deeper. So we're interested, as I said last night, not just in the sort of grosser selfing, the grosser kind of psychological constructs of self and movements of self, but actually also the subtle. So dependent arising is not... Uh, stopping at a level that says, this is it, this is how it is, deal with it, or things are impermanent, deal with it, or uh, bear attention is the reality, or just stay at sense contact. That's a, a level, a really, really important level, but we're, we're beginning to go even underneath that, profound, profound, profound. So as I said, there are reasons that the Buddha really questioned whether he should teach at all, really questioned whether it wasn't going to actually be complete hassle for him. <laughs> So in turn, just briefly, about that uh, meditative process of things fading. Not just pain, so I wasn't sure if that got communi- if that somehow got uh, truncated. It's not just pain we're talking about that I, I want you to explore with this. Um, but also other aggregates, the, 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 the experience, basically. So for instance, the sense of body, the sense of the definition, the contour, the, the boundaries of the body that too, when we let go, begins to dissolve, fade, blur, etc. Vedana, okay, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What happens in relationship to Vedana when we let go of clinging, let go of identification, let go of delusion? You might have unpleasant Vedana. Actually, you will see, we will see, it becomes less unpleasant. People have already talked about the pain thing. It becomes less unpleasant. What happens to pleasant Vedana? That's an interesting one. Generally, sometimes when we let go of clinging in relation to pleasant, it actually becomes more pleasant. But generally what happens with Vedana is the extremes begin to collapse towards the middle, collapse towards more neutrality. There is the fading of Vedana, and actually goes even, at some point, even beyond neutrality. Does that make sense? Uh, (laughs) except for beyond neutrality yeah, I haven't got to that yet I will get to that when I mentioned the word cessation the other day I will get in another talk to what that means to go beyond neutrality as well yeah, thank you Um, mind states the body, uh, Vedana, mind states what happens in meditation if there's some samadhi or some well-being or some just stillness there and I take the stillness as an object it's a perception, it's a thing it's an object for consciousness and I, and I disidentify with that, or disidentify with the awareness of that, or I let go of the subtle clinging that might be uh, in relationship to that. Calmness, stillness, peace, whatever feels like it's there. Or any emotion, fear, anger, joy, boredom, whatever it is. See, these two are, we say, fabricated perceptions. They're fabricated perceptions. They cannot support themselves without the mind supporting their perception in a certain way. harder, and this has come up in here and also in interviews, harder to do it with external objects, uh, because there will generally be, not an identification with the object, but an identification with the awareness. And that's uh, more subtle and more deep to disidentify with the awareness. When we can, something else will open up, as I said last night. So, in terms of instruction, to see and to do this, if it feels like it's something that's working for you, to see and do this with as much as possible of inner experience. In time you can expand that. Two, Two or three people today in interviews were saying it's easier to see the connection of, say, clinging and identifying, feeding the building of things. It's easier to see that connection. Um, or rather it's harder to see it when the awareness is open and you're just kind of getting this experience and that experience arising and passing, the whole thing kind of gets a bit faded. But it's hard to draw that conclusion because it just seems like a general thing happening. One isn't so clearly seeing the relationship between letting go of identification or clinging. So it's fine to do it that way, but it will be easier to see the relationship, the dependent arising relationship, if you look at one thing this calmness, this knee pain, this vedana, one thing that's a bit steady, and really look at that, and and say, okay, I'm going to let go in relationship to that, I'm going to disidentify in relationship to that. And then that relationship starts to get really, really obvious, repeated, repeated. So, the conclusion of all that, seeing it so many times, just as I said, like a kind of scientific experiment, is... Experience, perception, object, thing, whatever name we give to it, is a fabrication, a a dependent arising, which means that it's empty. It doesn't exist as itself, by itself, in itself. Sometimes meditators, and again experienced meditators, find that things fade. They find themselves in a big state or space of emptiness. Everything's kind of gone, but oftentimes haven't understood how that arises. It just seems to be a deepening in meditation, then I've kind of arrived at a space. Not understood that actually what's happened is one hasn't been supporting the perceptions of the more normal reality and actually taking away the supports and taking away the supports without maybe even realizing it. And so the whole of perception just fades and it gets to be space or nothing or emptiness or whatever. If I get to a place like that and I don't understand how it, how it came about, then I will tend to make emptiness into a thing, give it a capital letter and not an adjective. And that kind of emptiness as a metaphysical space or whatever, beautiful and helpful, but it's lost its connection with dependent arising and it's become a thing. Okay. So, like I said, tonight I want to throw out, there's, there's all that, what I just said about the fading, Hope, hopefully it's a little clearer now if it wasn't so far. <clears throat> Shifting from a... Let's see where to go now. Um, yeah, let's, let's do this. Okay, Shifting from the phenomenological approach to the more ontological approach, and we can ask, what about things that kind of exist a little bit? There's a reasoning, okay? There's another reasoning, uh, in the same way the chariot was a reasoning, but this is much simpler, much quicker, and can be very powerful, uh, quick and powerful and deep. It's called, and again, remember what I said at the beginning, take it or leave it, shelve it for later, whatever. Neither one nor many, it's called, neither one nor many. So these reasonings are not just philosophical... uh, you know, trains of thought, they're actually, we can take them into meditation and again use them as ways of looking at things that will bring freedom. They they can be, if you find a way of uh, doing it, can be very, very powerful. So let's take something. Let's take the body or even something like a uh, an emotion uh, that's manifesting in the body, or a bodily pain or discomfort that's manifesting in the body, or a clock, anything. Let's take a thing, and say, look at that thing. Let's say, look at the body, and say, the body is not one. And quite clearly, the body is not one thing. It's it's many things. I can, uh, I've got fingers and fingernails and hairs and ears and gallbladders and well, it's many things. It's many things. The body is many things. And even I can take some some of them away and still get a sense of a body there. And some that I don't feel uh, so much a part of the body. So you say, okay, the body isn't one, it's many. That's the nature of the body, it's a many, it's a collection, it's a many. But if it was really many, inherently many, I would need to find within that something that is really one. Because many, by definition, is a collection of ones. It's a collection of singularities, and together they make up many. Yep. Understand, Harriet? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what does many we- mean? What does the word many mean? The word many means a collection of things that are one, right? One and one and one and one and one and one, and, one, and, one, and together they make many, many, right? Well, what else would many mean? Separate. But several others, it's just another word of saying the same thing. It's a collection of things that must to to be really many, really inherently many it has to be a collection of what is really one's what is really a unit yeah body. more units, units yeah word. okay, yeah yeah okay, units, good word, yeah, so I need to, if it's if I say the body is clearly many, it's obviously not one, it must be many and if it's really many, I have to find some things that are really one, really one, really a unit. So I can look at the body, or an alarm clock, or whatever it is, or, or uh, an area of discomfort in the body, and I can say, okay, it's got parts, and I can look at those parts. So, for instance, I take um, a finger, and I see, well, it's got this part, and the knuckle, and, the, and it's got the bone, etc. Okay, it's got parts. Then I take those parts, say, um, say the skin, and uh, is that really one, or is it many? And again, it's many. It's many parts that make up the skin. And I go down, and I go down, and I go down, and I end up with atoms. Atoms are not one. They're nucleus and whatever. And I go down, and can I find uh, something that is a one? So I will always have... Even with a subatomic particle, so to speak, I will always have a part, or if we just think on the level of the skin, we'll say a part that touches this and a part that touches that. Many. In, on a subatomic level, I have a kind of part of a particle that's interacting with particles that way and a part of a particle that's interacting with particles that way and that way and that way, and that, whatever it is. Facing this way, etc., If I say, okay, but eventually you're going to get down to something that's partless. If it's really partless, it has no interaction this way or this way, or part that's facing that way or facing that way. And if it's really partless, which is sometimes what you hear in, say, Abhidhamma teachings, it's the world is made up of partless particles as a sort of postulation. But if it's really partless, if it's really partless, it can't actually occupy any space. How can it occupy any space? It, would have, it wouldn't have a part that faces this way, it interacts with particles that way or that way. It would actually, If it doesn't occupy any space, does it actually exist properly? It Also, if it was uh, dimensionless like that, it wouldn't be possible to kind of uh, amass particles together to create a mass of particles or a composite of something down at that level. And somehow, if it was dimensionless and partless, and had no part facing that way, and part facing that way, and part facing up and down, etc., all the particles that were around it would actually end up be touching it in the same at the same spot, and they too would be partless, and all the whole un- particles of the whole universe would actually be in one spot. So clearly, it's impossible that that you actually find a one of anything, a unit that ultimately really exists. So. You say, if I can't find one, and then going back to what we said before, I can't really find many, either. Because to find a real many, a real many, I have to have real ones, real units. What inherently exists, it means, to say something inherently exists, it means it is what it is, independent of anything else, it is what it is by itself, in itself. If it inherently exists, it has to be, it has to be either one or many, or nothing at all. It has to be either one or many, if it inherently exists. Otherwise its oneness or manyness, again, depends on the mind, depends on the mind, which is what we're saying, another way of saying what emptiness means. So that might seem like a lot to swallow, it might seem like you haven't followed it, I don't know. Um, It's actually very, very powerful, uh, and you can get quite quick with it, and it can take you very, very deep. Um, it needs, again, like like all these things, it needs some reflection on and to kind of convince yourself of and really work with it. And you can find your way through it, that sort of reasoning, uh, in different ways and quite uh, quickly in meditation. Let's take another thing. Um, let's take... Let's take something like an emotion, or um, a feeling of discomfort, or something in the body. And so you might have some pain, or it could be something like anger or fear. Um, Sorry. It's okay. You're all right. I'm in a lot of pain. You are you. Pain. What do you need to lie down? Yeah, okay, go for it. Um. Let's take something like physical discomfort, and uh, or anger, or fear, or illness, or something like that, or a situation even. And do you remember, this is a different approach now, but it's somewhat related to what I just said, but actually it's different. And this is moving back more into the phenomenological approach. So again, I'm throwing out lots of approaches tonight. Uh, take it, shelve it, use it, leave it for later, ignore it, whatever. Anything, any experience. Do you remember going way back in the retreat to the beginning and talked about how the mind does this dot-to-dot thing? So if I if I have, let's say I have a tummy ache, uh, and actually when I, or some discomfort in the body, when I actually go there with mindfulness, I realize it's actually a point here and a point here and a point here, and the mind is kind of joining those dots, or joining dots in time. Do you, do you remember this we talked about, dot-to-dot? Yep. So, uh... We have actually, when you actually look at experience closely with with just bare attention or mindfulness, what we get is actually a dot to dot, and we see the mind is joining these dots. And we get a feeling of a whole something, W-H-O-L-E, a whole something that's been made for experience by joining the dots. Yeah? Um, so we could say the whole is kind of, Imputed or extrapolated from the dots, from the instances, from the, the micro instances, from the parts. We could say, as such, uh, and remember, I remember asking, um, how many dots could we leave out and still have the sense of something there? You know, how much you get the sense of, how much the mind is filling in. So I'm back to talking about fabrication again. We say the whole, the sense of a whole, W-H-O-L-E. Is uh, imputed on the parts, or actually extrapolated, kind of concluded from the parts. It's created from the parts. Do you understand? Yeah. Uh, As such, it's a fabrication. It's not actually as solid as it seems. The experience, okay? Without mindfulness, without a close investigation, we see we've created something that feels like a whole solid entity. We've actually dotted to dotted it from the parts. So we say the whole actually is empty from what it seems like being. It's not actually that, it's fabricated from the instances, from the parts, from the dots. But it doesn't stop there, it doesn't stop there. What about the parts? So I might have, we talk about something in time as well, I might have an emotion of depression, an instance of depression, a moment of depression. And usually I feel it as this day or this year or this life is depressed. It's some big solid block. When I look closely, it's actually dotted to dotted. But if I've created that hole, what then happens is it feeds back on our perception of the parts. And it feeds back in the way of the parts are then interpreted, so to speak. This, none of this is conceptual. They're interpreted um, as being part of this burdensome big hole. Whether it's a, a pain or a region of discomfort or an emotion or a situation, do you understand, Virginia? do you understand? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I've got a bit. Uh, so worse. it's like a feedback loop. It's a feedback loop. Yeah. So we're saying the whole is actually not really a reality. It's a. We've joined the dots. We've we've made. We've fabricated the whole. But then when we feel that moment, that actually is an instance. We could say it's actually got a lot more solidity to it because it's interpreted as being part of a bigger whole, a burdensome big whole, either something in time or something in space. And so the part actually ends up, it's also empty, it's being given its solidity by an interpretation of being part of the whole. What if we went round the loop again? So we said the whole is empty because it's dependent on the parts, the parts are empty because it's dependent on the whole, but even more than that, the whole is then being built from parts that are empty. (laughs) This goes on, this is the way perception works, this is what we fall for. So, again, these are meditations. I can actually look at something like a tummy ache, uh, the body feeling discombobulated in some way, an emotion that seems to stretch out in time, a situation I'm having difficulty with, and actually reflect, consider uh, meditatively, meditatively, in the focus of meditation, that this this is what's happening. Seeing that, again, my poker chip pile of delusion is less. And, and and the the perception too will begin to loosen, to desolidify, to unfabricate. Okay, so I'm talking about possible possible meditation. Whether we take the first one, this one or many, and kind of going back to partless parts and kind of. Uh, as, uh, as Robert Thurman says, exploding it to smithereens. It's kind of whether we do it that way or actually see this interdependence of parts and whole, instances and whole. Uh, either way, it's empty. Either way, the thing is empty. The phenomenon, the experience is empty. Both of these can get pretty quick and pretty easy with practice. They're, they're Some of you just pull out of your toolbox and kick in with a little practice. It's uh, and, and really quite powerful. When we say came up i can 't remember which talk we say things are mutually dependent there's a mutual contingency, a mutual arising of things in the world in a way that mutual dependency of parts and whole or whatever it is grasping and uh, grasping a thing we talked about that mutual dependency it actually refutes inherent existence as so two things leaning on each other must be mutually empty, but in a way. At the very same time, it affirms all the phenomena of the world in mutual interconnectedness, in mutual web of of contingency, of of co-arising, co-arising. But to just some some together, together, some together, arising together. It actually affirms, uh, through the interdependent relationships uh, with each other, all the phenomena of the world. so we talked a little bit uh, about about uh, the body at some point before I can't remember but the same thing here I just went through the reasoning with it's not one or many the body it's also parts and a whole that in in relation you can look at it that way what about uh, some of you may have heard this before uh, from other teachers so when does uh, the famous guy house porridge if we take that when does that become me porridge is a great example because it's very kind of um (laughs) 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 no (laughs) when does that become me when it it goes in and it's already kind of slimy and uh, glutinous glutinous and, and all that when does it actually become me when does a banana, which is also kind of mushy, when does it become me? Where is the borderline, when does the boundary between what is me and what is not me? When does the air I breathe become me, exactly? When does the water I drink become me? When does, Or rather, when does it become the body? Excuse me, because we're, we're talking about phenomenal emptiness. And When does it become the body? When does the porridge, the air, the water become the body? And to reflect on this, Pointing to that you can't actually draw those boundaries, so one of the meanings of emptiness is the uh, the lack of real real boundaries and real separation between things. We also uh, at some point again I can't remember when it was, said, imagine uh, if I sat here and gradually chopped off bits of of my body, my uh foot and then my uh, other leg and my arm and etc, and slowly slowly. <laughs> don't <laughs> I'll try and restrain myself so <clears throat> when at what point does it when you what you're remaining looking at uh when is it not a body you know, different people would say different things or, or the mind would feel very unsure and you get a sense of the way the mind is actually imputing its a thisness on something uh just to throw out and <clears throat> just in in the service of brevity tonight I won't go into this but that chariot meditation uh, last year quite a few people picked it up this year seems like less people are picking it up you can also do it on things so you can also do it on the body and go through the seven reasonings in relationship not just to the self but to the body or to a thing or to an alarm clock or to whatever to an emotion even and actually is it the parts is it separate from the parts is there something called an emotion that owns the parts that's separate from the parts is it the shape of it? Is it the you know continuum of it? Look into all this for phenomena too. Again, if you if you develop and I know you know when I present stuff out like it, it seems like I could never do anything like that. Actually we can learn it, we can absorb it. Um, I was sharing with a couple of people in interviews, I learnt that chariot thing off retreat. I actually taught myself it off retreat, and I'm not not a big well, my point is it's not a big deal, it's nothing about me, is that it's really not a big deal. And we can learn to do it and uh, it can be something that's part of our daily practice. really not that big a deal. It just sounds like it is. It just takes some reflection and some thinking through. Also in meditating, just staying with the body now, the emptiness of the body, and some of you uh, have or will or at some point in your meditation kind of unfoldment um, have a sense of... uh, the body actually beginning to blur its boundaries and to dissolve a bit in, in the depths of meditation. And then it's very, it's very hard to say, where does my body end and the rest of the universe begin? And one actually has has that sense. And sometimes we're talking way back in the Samadhi talk of the, the subtle body, the subtle body. And sometimes it feels like the subtle body is bigger than the body. is Is that the body or is it something else? Where does that begin? Where does it end? Is the subtle body different or the same as the gross body? So many, many ways to contemplate the emptiness of phenomena, many ways. But all this applies to all the aggregates, all the khandhas, body, body, Vedana, perceptions, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. So, from uh, Nagarjuna's Precious Garland, as long as a conception of the aggregates, of the khandas, as inherently existent, exists, as long as we conceive, feel them to be inherently existent, so long, then, will a conception of the I, the self, be inherently as inherently existent, exist. They are the seeds, seeing them as inherently existent is the seeds of the delusion of, of self, self-reality, self-concept. That's what I was saying, going back right to the beginning of the talk, it's not enough just to say self is like this, it's just the aggregates in process or whatever. You actually have to see the emptiness of those two. So we've talked about some of this, we've talked about body, we've talked about uh, vading a little bit, perception, grasping, uh, you know... Grasping and thing, or grasping and Vedana, we push away unpleasant Vedana, we pull towards us pleasant Vedana. When is that movement, or is that movement uh, found inseparably from the Vedana? At first it seems it can. When we go deeper into it in meditation, you actually cannot find the intention, the mental formation, the grasping separate from the Vedana. So all these aggregates, something like, um, again, discomfort or tiredness. Tiredness is a very interesting thing to feel. When I go looking for tiredness, I can feel overwhelmed by tiredness. If I actually go looking for it, what exactly is the tiredness? I cannot find it. I will not be able to find tiredness. And so very interesting, when you're tired, to actually really go looking and seeing if you can find tiredness. What I'll probably find is some sensation somewhere in the body, often just behind the eyes, and some relationship with those sensations that's feeding those sensations so that they spread and build, and uh, maybe some thoughts and beliefs and self-view, etc., and it's all compact, and I actually cannot find tiredness. So again, that also the dot-to-dot thing would apply to that and the way that the instances feed the sense of a whole, and it feeds back on instances, etc., or partless, partless parts of that, etc. Um, in terms of our experience, the appearance, as we've been saying, and I hope has uh, been communicated, the appearance of things for us is dependent on the way of looking. It's dependent on the way of looking. So, I can experience some body sensation as, uh, or pain or uh, whatever, as flickering atoms of sensation. I can experience it as an impression in awareness, in vast awareness. I can experience it as pain, etc. All that is possible. And all this, this keep going on about this learning ways of looking, learning ways of looking. The default human ways of looking at things, unfortunately, uh, most of them lead to suffering and lead to a building of experience. The usual ways we look and relate to experience build suffering and build experience. I see a big part of what meditation is, is learning other ways of looking, other ways of relating that actually drain the suffering from what's going on, and actually don't feed this building process, don't feed that building process. Is temperature okay? Um, so someone uh, brought it up today, and it's very important. I, I don't know if I've mentioned it already. Um, part of this building process is also, is also the mental labeling. People have brought it up once or twice, and that's very important. So, something like fear. Fear. And we get some sensations inside, and it's interesting, the mind comes and says, Fear. Now, it could say my fear, and that's identification, but even if it doesn't say my fear, even if it's just saying fear, or pain, and it's saying pain, not even my pain, just pain, that labeling is part of the constructing, fabricating, concocting, compounding process. It's actually... labeling something tends to actually solidify it as what the label says. So, again, pointing to meditation, what, what would it be to actually be aware of the labeling process and kind of see that you've kind of got two things going on, a set of sensations, let's say, and the labeling, and kind of, instead of letting them gel together and the amorphous experience become what the label says it, it is, I actually see it as two, two separate processes, so to speak, that one is feeding the other. Actually, they're feeding each other. And again, what happens when we can see that way? Actually the labelling of something is often inseparable from our reaction to it. So all this stuff is, is intertwined, uh, co-dependent, co-contingent. So that leaves consciousness. As I said yesterday, I'm, I'm planning my sort of thread through all this and thinking about it and saying, what's the easiest way that a meditator might deepen? It's hard, 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 subtle to see that consciousness has no inherent existence. Hard to see. Easier to see that uh, things experience objects. Uh, we say, depend on the mind. They depend on the mind. That's easier to see and work with in meditation, and that brings a lot of freedom to see that. There's I don't know if, who's in the hermitage wing, but there used to be in the kitchen there something that says, uh, there's a postcard, a beautiful picture of a view, and it says, it's your mind that creates the world. Is that still there? It's one of the manager's toilets. It. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> anyway, it's a lovely postcard of, some kind of a, a window frame and looking out onto a beautiful scene and it says, the caption is, it's your mind that creates the world and it's a quote of the Buddha, I don't know where the Buddha says that, or if he even said it, but that's that's the thing. It's actually easier. What we're pointing to is, um, well, there is that, but understanding what that means. What does it mean? The way that the mind is creating the experience of the world. Oh, okay. Yes, actually, some translations translate it that way. Other people translate the same verse very quite differently. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so we've touched on a little bit the mutual dependence of consciousness and its object. Consciousness and object mutually dependent. So to know consciousness means to know something, and to know means knowing something. We'll, we're going to go back to this in a lot more detail. But if I only see, if I only say intellectually, yes, yeah, sure, I understand consciousness needs an object; therefore, it therefore it lacks inherent existence. If I only see that at an intellectual level, it's not going to bring the 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 profound freedom that actually seeing it uh, really for ourselves meditatively can bring. Huge, uh, huge level of freedom opens up. So it's it's one thing to say I understand that intellectually, consciousness mind, nothing it's Another thing to be able to bring that into meditation and have it inform the way of looking and learn to look at things that way. That that's uh, quite quite profound. So what would it mean even? And we will get back to what would it even mean. What does the cessation of consciousness mean? The Buddha talks about the cessation of consciousness. If we talk about fading, what does it mean to see consciousness fade? What on earth could that possibly mean? We will revisit this. To me, the way, of see- the way of seeing phenomena fade in meditation, the emptiness of phenomena, is a very important stepping stone uh, to be able to meditatively see the emptiness, the lack of inherent existence of consciousness. Again, I doubt it's something that anyone could really jump to meditatively. It's quite, quite uh, difficult. So, from a Prajnaparamita text, uh, Perfection of Wisdom, the Tathagata, meaning the Buddha, Teaches that one who does not see forms, one who does not see feelings, does not see perceptions, does not see mental formations and intentions, does not see consciousness, mind, or mentality, sees reality. Again, the Buddha teaches that one who does not see forms is going through the ag- aggregates. The totality of our life experience one who does not see forms does not see feelings, does not see perceptions, does not see mental formations or intentions, does not see consciousness, mind or mentality sees reality okay, this is where we 're going <laughs> it's. That's a, a text called the Prajnaparamita Verse Summary, uh, Perfection of Wisdom Verse Summary. But as I said at the beginning of the talk, you get, you get statements like that littered through the Pali Canon as well. They're just not picked out so much, interestingly. Uh, but any Prajnaparamita you'll get, that's standard in, in there. It's not that this non-seeing of forms, feelings, etc., uh, that it's forever, because otherwise how would I... Go to the toilet. How would I uh, go shopping? How would I do anything? I cannot function in that state. But that depth of seeing reveals the fullness of the meaning of dependent arising, and the fullness, therefore, of the emptiness of things. So. Yeah, we are learning ways of looking, as I said, we are learning ways of looking that drain the suffering out and that also are actually pleasant abidings. Um, But they're heading in a certain direction, not to grasp at where they're going, because the insight, as I said, is one thread all the way down. Even if I haven't ever seen a meditation cushion or cannot spell meditation, I can still see that when I'm in a tantrum, things are a lot more solid. Things are a lot more prominent to consciousness. When I'm less, 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 the meditator is interested in going deeper, deeper, deeper with that insight, more and more subtle. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to leave a bunch out, which I'm sure is fine. Um, the aggregates then, this non-separability of things. At first, you know, when we begin meditating, begin hearing about the aggregates, it's actually important to see this is this, and this is this, and this is this, and this is this, and they're separate. When you go into them more, the aggregates, you actually see they're not separate, and they're not even separatable. The aggregates Arise together, the kandas, the skandhas arise together. And I mentioned a sutta of the Buddha in the Nikaya, the shorter series of question-and-answer, I think it is. It says, perception and vedana are not separate. What I perceive means what I experience, there will be a vedana tone, and I cannot extract the vedana. I may um, feel like the vedana quietens, but it's only going to go to neutral. So what I perceive, I feel. It ha- I has a feeling to it. Perception of aid, not separate. Um, sometimes people ask, teachers ask, where does the awareness of something end, and the uh, and the perception of it begin? Consciousness and perception are they, you know, are they separable? They're not. They're not. Um, where, if we get even more subtle, does where is the boundary lines and the separation between attention, attention? Consciousness and the intention to pay attention to something sounds like, and they get listed as different things. I, you cannot separate them. You cannot separate them because they're not actually separate. Also, and I'm not going to go into this now, but when we go into this in the way the way uh, experience seems to be happening in moments, I can't even separate one moment's aggregates from the next moment's aggregates. We'll come back to time and the emptiness of moments in another in another talk. But. What I want to skip to now, to end with, um, although I'll go into it in quite a little bit of detail, is is walking. So yesterday, Noel was sharing, we talked about vision. And what about walking? We haven't said much about walking. If I am walking meditation, and one's walking up and down, and there is this kind of stillness there, and one's really into it, and there's a kind of receptivity there of awareness, Uh, one begins to really get a sense that the walking as a thing, as an experience, depends on and is inseparable from the causes and conditions that support it. Walking is inseparable from the body. Where does body end and walking begin? Where does... uh, Walking is inseparable from the causes and conditions like Earth. The Earth is inseparable from gravity. It's inseparable from my intentions. And in, in the kind of sometimes the the beautiful kind of silence and openness and receptivity of of quietly walking up and down, slowly walking up and down, sometimes you actually get a sense that the whole universe is involved in my walking. The whole universe. And emptiness actually takes on a meaning of fullness. Fullness. Sometimes people get afraid of the nihilistic implications of emptiness. Actually, walking is full of the whole universe. It's kind of infinite to that open and receptive mind in meditation. We talked also about the dependence on opposites and relativity. Walking is relative to or opposite and as such dependent on non walking. When if you're walking really slowly really slowly when is walking not walking? When when is it standing? When is walking running? When is running jumping? You actually the mind makes these distinctions. And if we walk really, really slowly, at any point asking, is that walking? Is that walking? Is that walking? So you can inquire in this way in the meditation. You say, so I have to uh, cut out something that's not walking with the mind. And the mind does this kind of automatically. What is the mind cutting out of the concept of walking to create walking? Interesting question. When we walk, and there's a kind of one begins to get a sense that actually the nature of things. We could say it's a kind of poetic way of putting it. The true nature of things is infinite. Is infinite. It reaches everywhere. It includes everything. Again, in in the, the quietness and in the, the depths of of uh, if one's walking. The less self-identification there is and identifying, the less grasping, as they quieten, the whole sense of walking can begin to just uh, disband, unpack, dissolve. And of course someone would look and say, well of course is why I see them, I've been walking up and down for two hours. Obviously they're walking. And one will say afterwards, I was doing my walking meditation. But there's a sense to perception of it just dissolving. The walking is actually dissolving phenomenological approach. Let's move to the other approach, the sort of approach of reasoning. i read you something from the second chapter of the Mula Madhyamaka Karaka, which is uh, the sort of most seminal text on emptiness uh, by Nagarjuna and probably that exists in the whole of Buddhism. The fundamental wisdom of the middle way is uh, actually verses on the fundamental wisdom of the middle way something like that. It's from the second chapter, which is about motion and walking, and it could also be interpreted to be about change. On the path that has... So think about your walking path. Think about your walking up and down meditation. On the path that has been travelled, there is no moving. On the path that has not been travelled, there is no moving either. And in some other place, besides the path that has been travelled and the path that has not motions are not perceptible in any way at all so let's translate that a little bit here's a miniature version of a walking path okay can you see that it's got one one part that's white and one part that's brown can everyone see so this is my path i can divide it uh, into section a and section b section a is the section i've traversed already i'm halfway through my walking path and section B is the bit that I've got left to go, and I, the body, is somewhere in the middle there. A, there's no walking in part A. I've already, the motion has already been there. It's been and gone. There's no motion there. In part B, there's also no motion. I haven't got there yet, right? But there's no other part outside of A and B that actually exists. Where's the part that walking happens spatially? Uh... No motion where, uh, on what one's traversed, and where one, uh, or where one's not been yet. And there's no third part. There's no motion uh, in a third part somewhere. You can do that also with time, okay? Not just spatially, but with time. You could say, if motion exists, there must be, for anything to exist, there must be a time at which it exists. It must exist at a time to exist. But there's a little problem here, because motion is actually, if we think about what does motion mean, motion means a change of position over time, right? Motion is a change of position over time. The present, the present moment, has no duration. Has no duration. The present doesn't last. So we could say, well, okay, well, motion... In other words, over time, the present is not an over time, otherwise it would be there's a bit that was present and a bit that wasn't present right now. We could say then, okay, motion then exists, that means motion exists in the past or the future or both. But what that implies then is that now there's not moving, there's not motion. You say, well, okay, but that's just a kind of language thing because... It was in motion, or I was in motion, the body was in motion, and it will be in motion. It's just a, you know, play with words. But if that was the case, if it was then, or then, or will be then, that then implies that all motion is in the past or the future. You say, okay, right, it's just a matter of words. All motion is in the past or the future, but... I can say that at every moment. I can say that at every moment. <laughs> at any point in time, I can say that, which means there's no time at which I can really say that a thing is in motion. This gives you an example of the kind of. the, the sort of mind-boggling sort of uh, philosophical process that goes on in in Nagarjuna, his kind of explaining of the Prajnaparamita text, and brilliant, brilliant philosophical mind, uh, to prove that if something is inherently existent, it actually brings with it complete, um, what's the word, uh, incongruities, uh, ridiculous, absurd contradictions. So this, this, what we say about motion, can actually apply to change, as well, not just walking, but motion, also change. There's another one, I think it comes a few verses later in this chapter. And you can contemplate when you're walking. So if it applies to change, it also applies to something like breathing, or something, some situation that's happening, or some emotion that's happening. It goes like this. Walking cannot begin in a moment of stationariness. Why? because a moment of stationariness by definition is, is uh, you can't have movement in a moment of stationariness. can't begin, uh, since by definition it's not moving. It cannot either begin, so looking for the beginning of walking, beginning of motion, beginning of a breath, beginning of an, an emotion, whatever it is, can also begin, walking can also begin when there's moving, because by definition it can't begin there, it's already moving there. there's no possible moment uh, of course where it's something is both in motion and stationary, that would be a contradiction in terms and no moment when it's neither moving nor stationary and I could try chopping the moments up really small but there's always going to be a part where it hasn't yet begun and a part where it has begun I cannot find the beginnings of things I cannot find the beginnings of things, I cannot find the ends of things it may sound like, I don't know, it may sound like some of these are just mind games, etc. Bring them in, reflect on them, reflect on them, bring them into meditation, find a way. And extremely powerful, extremely powerful, can be. Is it a bit like animation? Do you have lots, of, you can create an illusion of movement? That's part of it, yes, that's part of it, yeah. That's, yes. Um, that in a way has to do with the dot to dot thing as yeah. well. Yeah, that's part of it, yes. Um, And I could say, you know, motion, it can't always have, I can't say what, it can't, it's just, okay, I can't find the beginning, but it's always begun, kind of in the past, that would be ridiculous, that's not our experience. Or it's always yet to begin, that's ridiculous too. In the present, there's no time to go anywhere. So this approach, uh, there's a word that, um, it's called prasangika. and the is Uh, What it literally means, I think, is consequence, a consequence. And it means an absurd consequence of believing that things have inherent existence. And so Nagarjuna's approach in Chandrakirti too was to say, if things have inherent existence, whether it's walking or motion or self or aggregates or whatever it is, if if they do, it always implies a totally absurd consequence, and therefore they, they cannot. Pr- proving it by uh, contradiction, by absurd contradiction, and uh, in the Tibetan, uh, I think it just goes as far as Tibetan. Tibetans have very sophisticated sort of hierarchies called doxography of of uh, teachings and schools of thought, etc. And they they love to classify things, much like the Indian philosophers love to classify this school and that school, and this one's a, a subtler version, of it, and so it goes, and this one's a superior one. Prasangika, this kind of Uh, absurdity of the consequences of inherent existence um, is held to be the highest school of the understanding of emptiness in in the Tibetan tradition, certainly, maybe other traditions. If you're going to use some of these analyses, um, you have to, in meditation, you just have to be careful that the mind doesn't kind of get out of control and spin off on them. So it takes a little bit of samadhi uh, to gather the mind in. But with the samadhi, you can actually... If you've got used to the reasoning, you can actually bring them in in ways that are inc- incredibly powerful incredibly powerful, but it, it takes both a little bit of Samadhi to rein it in and kind of focus it and also having thought them through so they feel like they're really handy and you can just pick it out and plug it in kind of thing. so I return to, to some uh, those quotes uh, and again, uh, in the part this one's from the Pali Canon. For one who sees there is no thing, or for one who sees there is nothing, it's from uh, Suttanipata. It's one of the earliest uh, uh, earliest uh, of the Buddha's teachings. For one who sees there is nothing, there is no thing. It's pointing to something very, very, very profound here. And again, I think it's from a I think it's from a Prajnaparamita text, I'm not sure. To see no thing is to see excellently. To see nothing is to see rightly. Th- peppered through all this is unreal we had that before the Buddha's again from the Sutta Nipata, the Pali Canon so this business goes very very uh, it's saying something quite counterintuitive about the universe quite counter it's not it's different than our intuitive as- assumptions about the universe and the nature of phenomena and the beautiful thing is, uh, we can realize it. We can, the beautiful thing is it's possible to penetrate it. It's possible to expose the fabrication. And all, all, everything that comes out of that exposition, not a letting go of ethics, certainly not a letting go of love, actually more love, more freedom.